Now, maybe two million years ago, somebody came from another galaxy in a flying saucer and had a look at this solar system, and they looked it over and shrugged their shoulders and said, just a bunch of rocks, and they went away. Later on, maybe two million years later, they came around and they looked at it again, and they said, excuse me, we thought it was a bunch of rocks, but it's peopling. <laughs> and it's alive, after all, it has done something intelligent. Welcome to The Love of Wisdom with Alan Watts. As one of the century's most eloquent philosophers, Alan Watts introduced a generation in the West to the fascinating ideas of the Far East, the wisdoms of the Orient. In the 1960s and early 70s, he lectured throughout the English-speaking world and was recorded in a variety of settings, from seminars aboard his ferry boat, the Vallejo, in Sausalito, California, to keynote addresses at major universities. The author of books on Christian theology, psychology, ecology, and Eastern religion, including his classic, The Way of Zen, Watt's scholarship is deep and timeless. However, it is also his wit and playful approach to life that endears him to us today. This program was recorded in 1965 at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. In this talk, Alan Watts tackles the fundamental philosophical question, who am I? Is the human being an island of consciousness locked up in a bag of skin, isolated from an alien world? Are there really insides and outsides? As he unwinds these questions, Watts examines the two fundamental Western myths, that human beings are either made by a celestial creator or are the result of random collisions, flukes in a world without meaning. Who am I? Here's Alan Watts. I believe that if we are honest with ourselves, that the most fascinating problem in the world is who am I? What do you mean? What do you feel when you say the word I? I myself. I don't think there can be any more fascinating preoccupation than that because it's so mysterious, it's so elusive. Because what you are in your inmost being escapes your examination in rather the same way that you can't look directly into your own eyes without using a mirror, you can't bite your own teeth, you can't taste your own tongue, and you can't touch the tip of this finger with the tip of this finger. And that's why there's always an element of profound mystery in the problem of who we are. This problem has fascinated me for many years, and I've made many inquiries. What do you mean by the word I? And there is a certain consensus about this, a certain agreement. <coughs> especially among people who live in Western civilization. Most of us feel I, ego, myself, my source of consciousness, to be a center of awareness 
and of a source of action that resides in the middle of a bag of skin. And so we have what I have called the conception of ourselves as a skin-encapsulated ego. Now, it's very funny how we use the word I. If we just refer to common speech, we are not accustomed to say, I am a body. We rather say, I have a body. We don't say, I beat my heart, in the same way as we say, I walk, I think, I talk. We feel that our heart beats itself, and that has nothing very much to do with I. In other words, we don't regard I myself as identical with our whole physical organism. We regard it as something inside it. And most Western people locate their ego inside their heads. You are somewhere between your eyes and between your ears, and the rest of you dangles from that point of reference. It is not so in other cultures. When a Chinese or Japanese person wants to locate the center of himself, he points here, not here, here to what Japanese call the kokoro, or the Chinese call shin, the heart, mind. Some people also locate themselves in the solar plexus. But by and large, we locate ourselves between, behind the eyes and somewhere between the ears, as if within the dome of the skull there was some sort of arrangement such as there is at the SAC headquarters in Denver, where there are men in great rooms surrounded with radar screens and all sorts of things and earphones on, watching all the movements of planes all over the world, so in the same way, we have really the idea of ourselves as a little man inside our heads who has earphones on, which bring messages from the ears, and who has a television set in front of him, which brings messages from the eyes, and all sorts of uh, electrode things are all over his body, giving him signals from the hands and so on, and he has a panel in front of him of buttons and dials and things, and so he more or less controls the body. But he isn't the same as the body, because I am in charge of what are called the voluntary actions, and what are called involuntary actions of the body, they happen to me. I am pushed around by them, but to some extent also I can push my body around. This, I have concluded, is the ordinary, average conception of what is oneself. And look at the way children, influenced by our cultural environment, ask questions. Mommy, who would I have been if my father had been someone else? You see, the child gets the idea from our culture 
that the father and mother gave him a body into which he was popped at some moment, whether it was conception or whether it was parturition is a little bit vague. But there is, in our whole way of thinking, the idea that we are a soul, a spiritual essence of some kind, imprisoned inside a body. And that we look out upon a world that is foreign to us. In the words of the poet Hausman, I, a stranger and afraid, in a world I never made. I shall have much more to say about that in the second lecture. But in the first now, I want to examine the strange feeling of being an isolated self. Now, actually, it is absolutely absurd to say that we came into this world. We didn't. We came out of it. What do you think you are? Supposing this world is a tree, are you leaves on its branches or are you a bunch of birds that settled on a dead old tree from somewhere else? Surely everything that we know about living organisms from the standpoint of the sciences shows us that we grow out of this world that we, each one of us, are what you might call symptoms of the state of the universe as a whole. But you see, that is not part of our common sense. Western man has for many centuries been under the influence of two great myths. When I use the word myth, I don't necessarily mean falsehood. To me, the word myth signifies a great idea in terms of which man tries to make sense of the world. Maybe an idea, it may be an image. Now, the two images which have most profoundly influenced Western man are number one, the image of the world as an artifact like a carpenter's table or a jar made by a potter. Indeed, in the book of Genesis, there comes the idea that man was originally a clay figurine made out of the earth by the Lord God, who then breathed into this clay figurine and gave it life. And the whole of Western thought is profoundly influenced through and through and through by the idea that all things, all events, all people, all mountains, all stars, all flowers, all uh, grasshoppers, all worms, everything are artifacts. They have been made and it is therefore natural for a Western child to say to its mother, how was I made? That would be quite an unnatural question for a Chinese child, because the Chinese do not think of nature as something made. 
They look upon it as something that grows, and the two processes are quite different. When you make something, you put it together, you assemble parts, or you carve an image out of wood or stone, working from the outside to the inside. But when you watch something grow, it works in an entirely different way. It doesn't assemble parts. It expands from within and gradually complicates itself, expanding outwards like a bud blossoming, like a seed turning into a plant. But behind our whole thought in the West is the idea that the world is an artifact, that it is put together by a celestial architect, carpenter, and artist who therefore knows how it was done. When I was a little boy and I asked many questions which my mother couldn't answer, she used to resort in desperation to saying, my dear, there are some things that we are not meant to know. And I said, well, will we ever find out? And she said, yes, when we die and we go to heaven, uh, it will all be made clear. And I used to think that on wet afternoons in heaven, we would all sit around the throne of grace and say to the Lord God, now just why did you do it this way? And how did you manage it that? And he would explain it and make it all very clear. All questions would be answered. Because as we have popularly, in popular theology, understood the Lord God, he is the mastermind who knows everything. And if you ask the Lord God exactly how high is Mount Whitney to the nearest millimeter, he would know exactly like that and would tell you. Any question the Cosmic Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> Unfortunately, this particular image or myth became too much for Western man because it was oppressive <coughs> to feel that you are known through and through and watched all the time by an infinitely just judge. I have a friend, a very enlightened woman, she's a Catholic convert, but a very enlightened Catholic. And in her bathroom, she has on the, the pipe that connects the tank with the toilet seat, a little framed picture of an eye. And underneath in Gothic letters is written, Thou God seest me. Everywhere is this eye watching, 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 and judging you. So that you always feel you're never really by yourself. But the old gentleman is observing you and writing notes in his black book. And this became too much for the West. It became oppressive. They had to get rid of it. And so instead, we got another myth the myth of the purely mechanical universe. This was invented at the end of the 18th century. It became increasingly fashionable throughout the course of the 19th century 
and well into the 20th century so that it is today's common sense. Very few people today really believe in God in the old sense. They say they do, but they really hope there is a God. They don't really have faith in God. They, 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 they fervently wish that there was one and feel that they ought to believe that there is. But the idea of the universe being ruled by that marvelous old gentleman is no longer plausible. It isn't that anybody's disproved it, but it just somehow doesn't go with the vast infinitude of galaxies and the immense light year distances between them and so on. So instead, it has become fashionable and it is nothing more than a fashion, to believe that the universe is dumb, stupid, that intelligence, values, love, and fine feelings reside only within the bag of the human epidermis, and that outside that, the thing is simply a kind of a chaotic, stupid, interaction of blind forces. Courtesy of Dr. Freud, for example, uh, biological life is based on something called libido, which was a very, very loaded word. Blind, ruthless, uncomprehending lust. That's the foundation of the human unconscious. And similarly to thinkers like of the 19th century, like Ernst Haeckel, even Darwin, T.H. Uh, Huxley, and so on, there was this notion that at the root of being is an energy. And this energy is blind. This energy is just energy. And it's utterly and totally stupid. And our intelligence is an unfortunate accident by some weird freak of evolution, we came to be these feeling and rational beings, more or less rational. And this is a ghastly mistake, because here we are in a universe that has nothing in common with us, doesn't share our feelings, has no real interest in us. We're just a sort of cosmic fluke. And therefore, the only hope for mankind is to beat this irrational universe into submission and conquer it and master it. Now, all this is perfectly idiotic. If you would think that the idea of the universe as being the creation of a benevolent old gentleman, although he's not so benevolent, he takes a sort of, this hurts me more than it's going to hurt you sort of attitude to things. Uh, you can have that on the one hand, and if that becomes uncomfortable, you can exchange it for its opposite, the idea that the ultimate reality doesn't have any intelligence at all. At least that gets rid of the old bogey in the sky in exchange for a picture of the world that is completely stupid. Now, these ideas don't make any sense especially the last one. Because you cannot get 
an intelligent organism such as a human being out of an unintelligent universe. The saying in the New Testament that figs do not grow on thistles nor grapes on thorns applies equally to the world. You do not find an in intelligent organism living in an unintelligent environment. Look, here is a tree in the garden and every summer it produces apples and we call it an apple tree because the tree apples. That's what it does. All right. Now here is a solar system inside a galaxy. And one of the peculiarities of this solar system is that at least on the planet Earth, the thing peoples. <laughs> In just the same way that an apple tree apples. Now maybe two million years ago, Somebody came from another galaxy in a flying saucer and had a look at the solar system and they looked it over and shrugged their shoulders and said just a bunch of rocks and they went away. Later on, maybe two million years later, they came around and they looked at it again and they said, excuse me, we thought it was a bunch of rocks but it's peopling <laughs> and it's alive. After all, it has done something intelligent. Because, you see, we grow out of this world in exactly the same way that the apples grow on the apple tree. If evolution means anything, it means that. But, you see, we, we curiously twist it. We say, well, first of all, in the beginning, there was nothing but gas and rock. And then intelligence happened to arise in it you know, like a sort of fungus or slime on the top of the whole thing. Uh, but we're thinking in a way, you see, that disconnects the intelligence from the rocks. Where there are rocks, watch out. Watch out, because the rocks are going eventually to come alive and they're going to have people crawling over them. It's only a matter of time. Just in the same way as the seed, the acorn, is eventually going to turn into the oak because it has the potentiality of that within it. Rocks are not dead. You see, it depends on what kind of attitude you want to take to the world. If you want to put the world down, you say, oh well, fundamentally it's only just a lot of geology. It's a stupidity. And uh, it so happens that uh, there's a kind of a freak comes up in it, which we call consciousness. And that's an attitude that you take when you want to prove to people that you're a tough guy, that you're realistic, that you face facts, and that you don't indulge in wishful thinking. It's just a matter of role-playing. And you must be aware of these things. They are fashions in the intellectual world. On the other hand, if you feel warm-hearted towards the universe, uh, you put it up instead of putting it down and you say about rocks they're really conscious but a very primitive form of consciousness because after all when I take even this uh, crystal here which is glass and go well it makes a noise 
And that response, that resonance, is an extremely primitive form of consciousness. Our consciousness is much more subtle than that. But when you hit a bell and it rings, you touch a crystal and it responds, uh, inside itself, it, I mean, it has a very simple reaction. It goes jangle inside, whereas we go jangle with all sorts of colors and lights and intelligence, ideas and thoughts. It's more complicated. <coughs> but both are equally conscious, but conscious in different degrees. That is a perfectly acceptable idea. It's just the opposite of the idea. See, all I'm saying is that minerals are a rudimentary form of consciousness, whereas the other people are saying that consciousness is a complicated form of minerals. You see? And what they want to do is to say everything is kind of bleh. Whereas what I want to say is hooray, you know, let's, life is a good show. You are something that the whole world is doing. Just as when the sea has waves on it, all right, the sea, the ocean is waving. And so each one of us is a waving of the whole cosmos, the entire works, all there is. And with each one of us, it's waving and saying, yoo-hoo, here I am. Only it does it differently each time. Because variety is the spice of life. Most of us are brought up to feel that what we see out in front of us is something that is that lies beyond our eyes out here that the colors and the shapes that you see in this room are out there now in fact that is not so in fact all that you see is a state of affairs inside your head all these colors, all these lights, are conditions of the optical nervous system. There are, outside the eyes, quanta, electronic phenomena, vibrations. But these things are not light. They are not color until they are translated into states of the human nervous system. So if you want to know how the inside of your head feels, open your eyes and look. That is how the inside of your head feels. But we are normally unaware of that and project it out. Welcome to The Love of Wisdom with Alan Watts. This is Myth of Myself. It's the second part of the opening address at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, in 1965, in which Alan Watts examines the possibility that what we think of as myself may in fact be a case of mistaken identity. In the first part of this talk, Watts examined the supposition that human beings exist as a center of consciousness locked inside a bag of skin. Here, he illustrates the shortcomings of such a limited view of the self and the problems this view leads to in our relations with others and with our environment. 
Here's Alan Watts. As we study man or any other living organism and try and describe him accurately and scientifically, we find that our normal sensation of ourselves as isolated egos inside a bag of skin is a hallucination. It really is. It's absolutely nutty. Because when you describe human behavior, or the behavior of a mouse or a rat or a chicken or anything you want to describe, you find that as you try to describe its behavior accurately, you must also describe the behavior of its environment. Supposing I walk and you want to describe the action of walking. You can't talk about my walking without also describing the floor. Because if you don't describe the floor and the space in which I am moving, all you will be describing is somebody swinging his legs in empty space. So as to describe my walking, you must describe the space in which you find me. You know, you couldn't see me unless you could also see my background, what stands behind me. See, if I myself, if the boundaries of my skin were coterminous with your whole field of vision, you wouldn't see me at all. And that would be the thing that filled your field of vision, that, that was the thing standing there. You wouldn't see me because in order to see me, you have to see not only what is inside the boundary of my skin, but you have to see what is outside it too. Now that's terribly important. Really, the fundamental, ultimate mystery, the only thing you need to know to understand the deepest metaphysical secrets is this, that for every outside, there is an inside, and for every inside, there is an outside. And although they are different, they go together. There is, in other words, a secret conspiracy between all insides and all outsides, and the conspiracy is this, to look as different as possible, and yet underneath to be identical, because you don't find one without the other. Like Tweedledum and Tweedledee, agreed to have a battle. Note that, agreed. So there is a secret. What is esoteric, what is profound and what is deep is what we will call the implicit. What is obvious and on the open is what we will call the explicit. And I and my environment, you and your environment are explicitly as different as different could be but implicitly you go together. And this is discovered by the scientist when he tries, as the whole art of science is to describe what happens exactly. And when he describes exactly what you do, he finds out that you, your behavior, is not something that can be separated from the behavior of the world around you. But you see, the funny thing is, we haven't been brought up to feel that way. 
Instead of feeling that we, each one of us, are something that the whole realm of being is doing, we feel that we are something that has come into the whole realm of being as a stranger. When we were born, we don't really know where we came from, because we don't remember. And we think when we die, that's just going to be that. Some people console themselves with the idea that they're going to heaven or that they're going to be reincarnated or they're going to summer land or something, you know. <coughs> people don't really believe that. <clears throat> for, for, for most people, it's plausible. The real thing that haunts them is that when they die, they're going to sleep and never going to wake up. They're going to be locked up in the safe deposit box of darkness forever. But that all depends, you see, upon a false notion of what is oneself. Now, the reason why we have this false notion of ourselves is, as far as I can understand it, that we have specialized in one particular kind of consciousness. Being very general and rough, we have two kinds of consciousness. One I will call the spotlight, and the other the floodlight. The spotlight is what we call conscious attention. And that is trained into us from childhood as the most valuable form of consciousness. When the teacher in class says, pay attention, everybody stares and looks fast at the teacher like that. That's spotlight consciousness. Fixing your mind on one thing at a time. Concentrate. And even though you may not be able to have a very long attention span, nevertheless you concentrate. You use your spotlight, one thing after another, one thing after another, flip, 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 like that. But we also have another kind of consciousness, which I'll call the floodlight. For example, you can drive your car for several miles with a friend sitting next to you, and your spotlight consciousness will be completely absorbed in talking to your friend. Nevertheless, your floodlight consciousness will manage the driving of the car, will notice all the stoplights, the other idiots on the road, and so on, and you'll get there safely, without even thinking about it. But our culture has taught us to specialize in spotlight consciousness and to identify ourselves with that form of consciousness alone. I am my spotlight consciousness. My conscious attention, that is my ego, that is me. And very largely we ignore the floodlight. Now the floodlight consciousness is working all the time. Every nerve end that we have is its instrument. You know you can go out to luncheon or something and you sit next to Mrs. So-and-so and you go home and your wife says to you, was Mrs. So-and-so there? Yes, I sat next to her. Well, what was she wearing? Well, I haven't the faintest idea. You saw, but you didn't notice. Now, because we have been brought up to identify ourselves with the spotlight consciousness, and the floodlight consciousness is undervalued. 
we have the sensation of ourselves as being just the spotlight, just the ego that looks and attends to this and that and the other. And so we ignore and are unaware of the vast, vast extent of our being. People who by various methods become fully aware of their floodlight consciousness have what is called a mystical experience or a cosmic consciousness or what the Buddhists call bodhi, awakening. The Hindus call moksha, liberation. Because they discover that the real deep, deep self, that which you really are fundamentally and forever, is the whole of being. All that there is, the works, that's you. Only that universal self that is you has the capacity to focus itself at ever so many different here and nows. So when you use the word I, this, as William James said, is really a word of position like this or here. Just as a sun or star has many rays, so the whole cosmos expresses itself in you, in you, in you, in you, in you, with all the different variations. It plays games. It plays the John Doe game, the Mary Smith game. It plays the beetle game, the butterfly game, the bird game, the pigeon game, the fish game, the star game. Just like uh, these are games that differ from each other, just like backgammon, whist, bridge, uh, poker, pinochle, or like waltz, mazurka, uh, minuet, and so on. It dances with infinite variety. But every single dance that it does, that is to say, you, is what the whole thing is doing. But you see, we forget it. We don't know. We, we, we've been brought up in a special way so that we are unaware of the connection. Unaware that each one of us is the, is the works. Playing it this way for a while. And so we have been taught to dread death as if that were the end of the show. It won't happen anymore. And therefore to be afraid of all the things that might bring about death, pain, sickness, suffering. And if you don't know, you see, if you're not really vividly aware of the fact that you are basically the works, you have no real joy in life. You're just a bundle of anxiety mixed up with guilt. Because, you see, when we bring children into the world, we play awful games with them. Instead of saying, how do you do? 
welcome to the human race. Now, my dear, we are playing some very complicated games, and these are the rules of the game we're playing. I want you to understand them, and then you learn them, and then when you get a little bit older, you may be able to think up some better rules. Instead of being quite direct with our children, instead we say, you're here on probation, you understand that? And maybe when you grow up a bit, you'll be acceptable. But until then, you should be seen and not heard. You're, uh, you're a mess. And you've got to be educated and schooled and whipped until you're human. So that these attitudes which are inculcated into us in infancy go on into old age. The way you start out is liable to be the way you finish. So people going around fundamentally feeling that they don't belong. Because their parents said to them in the first place, look, you don't really belong here. You're here on sufferance. You're on probation. You're not a human being yet. And people feel this right on into old age. And so they figure that the universe is presided over by this awful kind of God the Father parent who, yes, has our best interest at heart, is loving, but who spares the rod spoils the child. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. So everybody's sort of, <laughs> when's it going to hit next? <laughs> so don't feel that they belong. So we get this ghastly, what I call Christian ego, a little bit Jewish too. <laughs> Who really feels that he doesn't, he's homeless, he does, he's an orphan. Even the Christians say we are sons of God by adoption and grace. Not real sons, but by adoption and grace and sufferance. And uh, so comes the sensation. So characteristic of Western man and indeed of all highly civilized people, of being a stranger in the earth, a momentary flash of consciousness between two eternal blacknesses. And so, therefore, we speak of confronting reality facing the facts. We speak of coming into this world. And this whole sensation that we are brought up to have of being an island of consciousness locked up in a bag of skin, facing outside us a world that is profoundly alien to us in the sense that what is outside me is not me. This sets up a fundamental sensation of hostility and estrangement between ourselves and the so-called external world. So my main point last night was then that we need a new kind of consciousness in which every individual becomes aware that his real self 
is not just his conscious ego. You know, let's take a headlight of a car. The headlight shines on the road in front. The headlight does not shine on the wire which connects it with its own battery. So in a way, the headlight is unaware of how it shines. And in the same way, we are unaware of the sources of our consciousness. We don't know how we know. There was a young man who said, though, it seems that I know that I know. What I would like to see is the eye that knows me when I know that I know that I know. <laughs> and so we are ignorant of, we ignore. It doesn't come within the scope of our attention how it is that we manage to be conscious. How it is that we manage to grow our hair, to shape our bones, to beat our heart, and to secrete all the necessary fluids that we need from our glands. We do it, but we don't know how we do it. Because you see, underneath the superficial self, which pays attention to this and that, there is another self, more really us than I. And if you become aware of that unknown self, the more you become aware of it, the more you realize that it is inseparably connected with everything else that there is. That you are a function of this total galaxy bounded by the Milky Way and that furthermore this galaxy is a function of all other galaxies. And that vast thing that you see far off, far off, far off with telescopes and you look and look and look one day you're going to wake up and say, why, that's me. And in knowing that, know, you see, that you never die. That you are the eternal thing that comes and goes, that appears now as John Jones, now as Mary Smith, now as Betty Brown, and so it goes forever and ever and ever. Let's take a headlight of a car. The headlight shines on the road in front. The headlight does not shine on the wire which connects it with its own battery. So in a way, the headlight is unaware of how it shines. And in the same way, we are unaware of the sources of our consciousness. We don't know how we know. Welcome to The Love of Wisdom with Alan Watts. This is Mythologies of Nature. It was recorded in 1965 at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. In this program, Alan Watts compares and contrasts three distinct views of nature. The Western idea of life as an artifact, the world as something made by a supreme maker. The Hindu idea of life as a drama, the world as a stage on which the gods pretend and play hide and seek for their own entertainment and the Chinese view of the Tao, nature that is spontaneous 
and has no boss. Here's Alan Watts. In my talk last night, I was discussing the disparity between the way in which most human beings experience their own existence and the way man's being and nature is described in the sciences. I was pointing out that in such sciences as ecology and biology, ecology, for example, describes and studies the relationship between all organisms and their environments. The way in which they describe human, animal, and insect behavior is in flat contradiction with the way in which most of us experience our thinking and our action and our existence. We have been brought up to experience ourselves as isolated centers of awareness and action placed in a world that is not us, that is foreign, alien, other, which we confront. Whereas, in fact, the way an ecologist describes human behavior is as an action, what you do is what the whole universe is doing at the place you call here and now. You are something the whole universe is doing in the same way that a wave is something that the whole ocean is doing. This is not what you might call a fatalistic or deterministic idea. You see, you might be a fatalist if you think that you are a sort of puppet which life pushes around. You are separate from life, but life dominates you. But in the point of view I am expressing, the real you is not a puppet which life pushes around. The real deep down you is the whole universe. And it's doing your living organism and all its behavior. It's expressing it as a singer sings a song. We've been hoodwinked into the feeling that we exist only inside our skins. And I was showing last night that that is a hallucination. It's just as nutty as anybody could be, like a fruitcake, you know, who thinks he's Napoleon or something or other. Thinks he's a poached egg and goes around finding a piece of toast to sit on. It's just like that, a hallucination. And I was showing how we need to experience ourselves in such a way that we could say that our real body is not just what's inside the skin, but our whole total external environment. Because if we don't experience ourselves that way, we mistreat our environment. We treat it as an enemy. We try to beat it into submission. And if we do that, 
comes disaster. We exploit the world we live in. We don't treat it with love and gentleness and respect. We cut down millions of acres of forests to turn it into newspaper of all things. Lovely trees turned into information about nothing. And we don't replace them properly. We kick the world around in revenge for feeling that really we are puppets which the world kicks around. Now then, why I made this point as an introduction to what I want to say tonight is the problem of the relationship of man and nature. Do you know, in the history of philosophy, there are really three theories of nature. <coughs> Incidentally, what do you mean when you use the word nature? What is nature study? Natural history. The museum of natural history. What do you expect to find there? Well, for many people, nature means the birds, the bees, and the flowers. It means everything that is not artificial. People think, for example, a building like this is not natural, it's artificial. The natural state of the human being is to be naked, but we wear clothes, and that's artificial. We build houses. Is there any difference between a human house and a wasp's nest? Or a bird's nest? Not really. But we do have in our minds, you see, the idea that nature is somehow outside us. We've got some nature in us. We say there's a thing called human nature, and mostly bad. Human nature, uh, according to Dr. Freud, is motivated by the libido. And you know what that is. And you can't trust it. In the old days, they used to beat it with whips. But Freud said, don't do it that way. You have to treat it as a good horse trainer. Trains a horse by giving it lump of sugar every now and then. And get it controlled that way. Be kind to it. Respect it. Even though it's really very, very disrespectable. Well, now, there are, as I said, in the history of mankind, three theories of nature. The first theory is the Western theory, which is that nature is a machine or an artifact. We inherit this from the Hebrews, who believed that nature was made by God in somewhat the same way as a potter makes a pot out of clay, or a carpenter makes a table out of wood. It is not insignificant that Jesus is the son of the carpenter. Our tradition has been to look upon the world as a construct. And somebody knows how it was put together. Somebody understands. And that is the constructor, the architect, the Lord God. But it so happened that in the 18th century, 
Western thought began to change. They became increasingly doubtful as to whether there was a maker, whether there was a God, but they continued to look upon the creation as an artifact, as a machine. And by the time of Newton, people were explaining the world in terms of mechanism. And we are still under the influence of that idea because after all in things like Life magazine and so on, when they give you an article on human physiology, they usually make drawings which show the human being as a kind of mechanism, as a sort of factory. And they show how the peristaltic action carries the food in and how it's processed by this organ and that organ as just as if uh, a certain product is fed into a factory, cow at one end, and it comes out canned corned beef at the other. Just in such a way, the human is illustrated, and so too in uh, some kinds of rather degraded medicine that is now practiced. When you go to the hospital for a medical examination, you are treated as a machine. They process you. You're not a person. You're put in a wheelchair immediately. Even if you are perfectly healthy and can walk, nevertheless they have to have you in this wheelchair. And they put you through a process. And the heart specialist looks only at your heart because he can't understand anything else. The otorhinolaryngologist, which means an ear, nose and throat man, looks at that section of you and he doesn't know about anything else. And maybe a psychiatrist takes a look at you and uh, goodness knows what happens there and so on and so on. Everybody looks at you from their specialized point of view as if they were a bunch of mechanics examining your automobile. Because, as I said last night, we, we just asked for this because most of us consider ourselves as chauffeurs inside our bodies, which we own in the same way as you own a car. And when it goes wrong, you take it to the mechanic to fix it you don't really identify with your body just as you don't really identify with your car. So here is this whole theory of nature which has grown up in the West as an artifact, something made. Now let me take a second theory of nature. This is an Indian theory, East Indian. Nature not as an artifact but as drama. Basic to all Hindu thought is the idea that the world is maya. That is a Sanskrit word which means many things. It means magic, illusion, art, play. All the world's a stage. And in the Hindu idea, there is the ultimate reality of the universe is the self, which they call Brahman or Atman. That's what there is. The self, universal, eternal, boundless, indescribable. And everything that happens, happens on the self. Like you say, it's on me. The drinks tonight are on me. Uh, or like we say, uh, when you hear the radio, it's on the speaker. You see, everything you hear on the radio Flutes, drums, human voices, traffic noises, 
any imaginable sound, all those sounds are vibrations of the diaphragm in the speaker. But the radio doesn't tell you that. The announcer doesn't come on and say every morning, good morning ladies and gentlemen, this is KQED. The following sounds that you are going to hear are vibrations of your, the diaphragm in your speaker. And they're not really uh, human voices or musical instruments, but just that. They never let you in on that. And in exactly the same way, the universe doesn't let you in on the truth that all sense experiences are vibrations of the self. Not just yourself, but the self. And all of us share this self in common because it is pretending to be all of us. Brahman, the ultimate principle, plays hide-and-seek eternally. And he does it for unspeakably long periods of time. The Hindus measure time in what is called a kalpa, K-A-L-P-A. That's 4,320,000 years. Don't take this seriously. It's not meant to be taken literally. But just for an unspeakably long time, the Brahman, the self, pretends that it's lost and is us. And all our adventures and all our troubles and all our agonies and tragedies, it gets mixed up in them. Then after the period of 4,320,000 years has elapsed, there is a catastrophe. The universe is destroyed in fire. And after that, the Brahman wakes up and says, well, good, crazy, what, a, what an adventure that was. He wipes the sweat off his brow and says, let's rest a while. So for another 4,320,000 years, the divine self rests and knows who it is. It's me. <coughs> then it says, well, this is rather boring. Let's get going again. Let's get mixed up. And it does it in a very strange way because uh, the way the Hindus time it, the first period of getting mixed up, getting lost, is beautiful. That's the longest period. Everything's right. It's just life is glorious. Then it has the next period in which things get a little wonky. Something is vaguely out of order. That doesn't last so long. Then the next period, the third, is when good and evil are equally balanced. And that's still not so long. Finally comes the shortest period when everything bad triumphs and the whole thing blows up and we begin all over again. We're supposed to be living in that now. It's what's called the Kali Yuga, the age of darkness. And it began on Friday, February the 23rd, 3,123 BC. And it has 5,000 years to run. But as it goes on, time gets faster, so don't worry. <laughs> so you see, that's a theory of nature as a drama. It's a play. Now there's a third theory of nature, which is Chinese. And this is very interesting. The Chinese word for nature, they call ziran. And this expression means, of itself, so. 
what happens of itself. Or we might say spontaneity. It almost means automatic, because automatic is what is self-moving. Only we associate the word automatic with machinery. But Ziran, what is of, so of itself, is associated in the Chinese mind not with machinery, but with biology. Your hair grows by itself. You don't have to think how to grow it. Your heart beats by itself. You don't have to make up your mind how to beat it. That's what they mean by nature. The poem says, sitting quietly, doing nothing, spring comes and grass grows of itself. So their principle of nature is called a Tao, T-A-O, pronounced Tao in the Mandarin dialect, Tao in the Shanghai dialect, To in the Cantonese dialect. Take your choice. Tao means the course of nature. And Lao Tzu, who was a philosopher who lived a little later than 400 <coughs> BC, wrote a book about the Tao. And he said, the Tao which can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. You can't describe it. He said the principle of the Tao is spontaneity. He said the great Tao flows everywhere, both to the left and to the right. It loves and nourishes all things, but does not lord it over them. It accomplishes merits and lays no claim to them. So there is a very great difference between the Chinese idea of Tao as the informing principle of nature and the Judeo-Christian idea of God as nature's lord and master. Because the Tao does not act as a boss. In the Chinese philosophy of nature, nature has no boss. There is no principle that forces things to behave the way they do. It is a completely democratic theory of nature. Correspondingly, you see, most Westerners, whether they be Christians or non-Christians, don't trust nature. Of all things, nature is the thing least to be trusted. You must manage it. You must watch out for it. It will always go wrong if you don't watch out. You know, the goblins will get you if you don't watch out. So we're always feeling that you, you can't trust it. See, we're absolutely instilled with the idea of original sin. You can't trust nature because it comes out with weeds and insects. And above all, you can't trust human nature because if you don't hold a club over yourself, you'll go out and rape your grandmother. Now the Chinese would say, if you can't trust yourself, you can't trust anything. Because if you can't trust yourself, 
Can you trust your mistrust of yourself? Is that well founded? See? You're, if you can't trust yourself, you are totally mixed up. You haven't a leg to stand on, you haven't a point of departure for anything. And in this respect, the, the Taoist philosophy and the Confucian philosophy are in agreement. In Confucius philosophy, the fundamental virtue of a human being is called Yan, spelled J-E-N for reasons best known to Chinese scholars. Uh, I don't know what they are, but it's pronounced Yan. And it's a character, Chinese character, that Confucius placed as the highest of all virtues, higher than righteousness, higher than benevolence, and it means approximately human-heartedness. Now, Confucius once said that goody-goodies are the thieves of virtue. Virtue in Chinese is de. We romanize it as T-E-H, de. And it means virtue not in the sense of moral propriety, but virtue in the sense of magic, as when we speak of the healing virtues of a certain plant. A man of true virtue is therefore a human-hearted man. And the meaning of this is that one should, above all, trust human nature in the full recognition that it's both good and bad, that it's both loving and selfish. When you look at the clouds, they aren't symmetrical, they don't form fours, they don't come along in cubes, but you know at once that they're not a mess. Now take a look at yourselves. We don't realize how wiggly we are. We're just like clouds, rocks, and stars. Welcome to The Love of Wisdom with Alan Watts. This program is called Man in Nature. It was recorded in 1965 at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. In this talk, Watts asks the question, what is truly meant by human nature? And he explores the distinction so often made between man and nature. He then introduces the Chinese view of nature, which leads to a humorous exploration of scholarship as leisure and the significance of human culture floating in the inherent wiggliness of a vast universe. Human beings are complex. We don't know ourselves at all, really. Consider your nervous system. Neurologists haven't even begun to figure it out. And yet all your conscious decisions are based on this thing that you don't understand. You're unbelievably more wise in your nature than you ever will be in your conscious thoughts because behind your conscious thoughts lies your nervous system. 
And if you say, well, my nervous system is unreliable, it is just a bunch of, of strange, weird biological chances that have got mixed up somehow, then this very opinion that you're expressing, you see, is a function of that nervous system. So you're saying that you are a total hoax. You can't trust yourself at all. And the meaning of this is that one should, above all, trust human nature in the full recognition that it's both good and bad, that it's both loving and selfish. A man of true virtue is therefore a human-hearted man. He has a sense of what is called li. I'm going to talk to you about another meaning of a word pronounced li later on, but it's quite a different word. Li is justice, but you can't write it down. There is another word for justice or law in Chinese, zi. And this word represents, in its Chinese character form, a cauldron for cooking sacrifices and a knife. In the high and far off times, of Chinese history, there was an emperor who, when the people brought their sacrifices of meat and so on to be put in the cauldrons, he also scratched with a knife on the side of the cauldrons the laws of the state so that all the people could read them and understand what they were. But the sages who advised this emperor said that was a very bad thing to do because the moment people see the law written down, they develop a liturgious spirit. That is to say, they think out ways of wangling around it. And that's what we do all the time, don't we? The moment Congress passes a law, tax law especially, all the lawyers get together and they think they, think they fill it full of holes. They say, well, it didn't define this and it didn't say that. And some of those Confucians wanted to put the language in order and to make all the words mean just so but the Taoists laughed at them and said, if you define the words, with what words are you going to define the words that define the words? <laughs> so they said, therefore, the emperor should not have written the laws down because a sense of justice is not something you can put in words. It's what our lawyers call equity. And you talk to any lawyer, and he, in discussing various judges around town, he will say, well, Judge so-and-so is pretty much a stickler for the letter of the law. But on the other hand, Judge so-and-so has a sense of equity. He knows when the law, the letter of the law, just doesn't apply to this particular case. And he just has an innate sense of fair play. That's the man to be trusted as a judge. So this is what the Chinese mean by a judge who has the sense of Li of real justice. It can't be written down, it can't be explained, because every case is individual. But what such a man has fundamentally in his heart, he trusts the good and bad of human nature. Nature, human nature included, is an organism. And an organism is a system of orderly anarchy. There is no boss in it, 
But it gets along by being left alone and being allowed to do its stuff. That's what the Chinese Taoist philosophy calls Wu Wei, which means not doing nothing, but not interfering with the course of events, not acting against the grain. Now this is the time to introduce the second word, Li, in Chinese. The first Li meant justice. The second Li is a character which had the original meaning of the markings in jade, the grain in wood, and the fiber in muscle. And it's usually translated reason or the principle of things. These are not very good translations. The best translation of Li is organic pattern. Now look here. When you look at the clouds, they aren't symmetrical. They don't form fours. They don't come along in cubes. But you know at once that they're not a mess. A dirty old ashtray full of junk may be a mess. But clouds don't look like that. When you look at the patterns of foam on water, they never make an artistic mistake. And they're not mess. They are wiggly, but in a way orderly, and it's difficult for us to describe that kind of order. Now take a look at yourselves. You're all wiggly. We think you know, we are pretty ordinary because there are a lot of us that look approximately the same. So when we see a human being, we think, well, that's pretty much in order and kind of regular and it's okay. But we don't realize how wiggly we are. We're just like clouds, rocks, and stars. Uh, look at the way the stars are arranged. Do you criticize the way the stars are arranged? Would you like them to form fours? Would you like them to be uh, sort of set out like... Uh, needlepoint on the canvas of the skies. There was somebody in the 18th century in the days when they built formal gardens of clipped hedges and made all the tulips stand together like soldiers who criticized the stars for being irregularly arranged. But today we don't feel that way. We love the way the stars are scattered. And they never make a mistake in their arrangement. What about mountain ranges? Do you criticize the valleys for being low and praise the peaks for being high? You just say it's, it's great, it's, it's the way it is. Now that kind of order, the artist pays a tribute to it by painting a landscape. People, you know, in, in every national park, there's a place called Inspiration Point. And people go there and they say, oh, it's just like a picture. <laughs> and nobody knew this 400 years ago. It took the artists to paint landscape, and then people realized how beautiful it is. Nowadays, artists are painting uh, pictures of damp, 
stained walls and floors where people have dropped a lot of paint. And one day people will walk into a room where there's a lot of paint been scattered on the floor and a general thing and they'll say, my goodness, it's just like a Jackson Pollock. <laughs> oh, ain't it just like a picture? <laughs> See? It always takes the artist to show us the vision. But of course, in the meantime, it is difficult. You go to an exhibition of contemporary non-objective painting, and a kind of square fellow walks in there, and he says, that's not what I call a picture. Because he, it's against his prejudices. <laughs> but I say to people now, uh, excuse me, wait a minute. Take a look at that again. I'm going to tell you something. That painting is a colored photograph of guess what and he looks at it in astonishment and entirely new eyes what could that be a photograph of and he begins to see it might be a photograph through a microscope of globules of germs floating in liquid it might be anything but there it is it suddenly comes at him goodness knows whether that was what the artist intended but that's a method of giving people a shock of seeing things in a new way. You know, a GI visited Picasso in Paris during the war and said, I can't understand your paintings. They're, they're absurd. Life doesn't look like that. Picasso said, do you have a girlfriend? He said, yes. Have you a picture? He said, yes. Show it to me. So he drew out his billfold and there was a little colored photograph of his girlfriend. And Picasso looked at it and said, Is she so small as that? <laughs> now then. The, the, the idea of Lee, the idea of natural order, is like this patterns on foam, patterns in jade, the shapes of the clouds, the shapes of trees and mountains. They are orderly, but we cannot put our finger on the order. We know it's orderly, but we don't know why. And we know it's completely different from a mess. From a mess. The order of nature is in that way then indefinable. We, when St. Augustine was asked what is time, he said, I know what it is, but when you ask me, I don't. And so in the same way, the Chinese would say, we know what the order of nature is, but if you ask us, we don't. The poet says, picking chrysanthemums along the eastern fence, gazing in silence at the southern hills, the birds fly home through the soft mountain air of dusk. In all these things there is a deep meaning, but when we are about to express it, we suddenly forget the words. That's Lee. Nature as a self-ordering principle, but it doesn't really know how it does it. Another poem says, if you want to know where the flowers come from, 
even the God of Spring doesn't know. This is a very remarkable attitude to nature. Politically, you see, if you translate this into politics, it is a high philosophical anarchy. And there's a lot to be said for this as a political point of view. That, in other words, government is always a mess. Because the state opposes itself to the people. We live under a constitution where we are supposed to be governed by ourselves. As somebody once said, down with democracy when we get it. <laughs> Because the state always, the government always creates itself as a business in competition with all the other businesses. And it wins because it's the biggest one of the bunch. The, the Taoists said of the state that it should be as anonymous and as unobtrusive as possible. That is to say that the emperor instead of going around in processions and being heralded and flags waved, should be as unobtrusive as the uh, head of the sanitation department. You know, he's a man, just a guy who goes around in a plain ordinary suit and uh, really attends to his job. And the, the head of uh, the sanitation of the city of Dallas uh, goes around, you don't have a police escort and sirens blowing and flags waving. He simply does his job. And the feeling of Lao Tzu is that the president or the emperor should have the same kind of attitude. That he should simply help the people and retire and not claim any merits for it. Always withdraw himself. Always be behind the scenes. Not striving for power, but simply to help things along. Govern a great state, he said, as he would cook a small fish. Now, you know, when you've got a small fish in the frying pan, don't keep tossing it around and fidgeting with the spatula. Otherwise, it'll fall apart. Do it gently. Softly, softly, catchy monkey. So then. Here is a conception of nature as something you must trust. Outside nature, the birds, the bees, the flowers, the mountains, the clouds, and inside nature, human nature. Now, nature isn't trustworthy completely. It'll sometimes let you down with a wallop. But that's the risk you take. That's the risk of life. What's the alternative? I do not trust nature at all. It's got to be watched. Do you know what that leads to? It leads to 1984 and Big Brother. It leads to the totalitarian state where everybody is his brother's policeman where everybody is watching everybody else to report them to the authorities, where you can't trust your own motivation, where you have to have a psychoanalyst in charge of you all the time to, think, to be sure that you don't think dangerous thoughts or peculiar thoughts, 
and you report all peculiar thoughts to your analyst and your analyst keeps a record of them and reports them to the government <laughs> and everybody is busy keeping records of everything it's much more important to record what happens than what happens this is already eating us up it's much more important that you have your books right than that you conduct your business in, in a good way in universities it's much more important that the registrar's records be in order than that the library be well stocked. After all, do you know your grades are all locked up in safes and they're protected from thievery and pilfering and they're the most valuable property that the university has. <laughs> the library can go hang. <laughs> then furthermore, the main function of a university is what any sensible person would imagine of to teach students and to do research. So the faculty should be the most important thing in the university. On the contrary, the administration is the most important thing. The people who keep the records, who make the game rules up. And so the faculty are always being obstructed by the administration and being forced to attend irrelevant meetings and uh, to do everything but scholarship. Do you know what scholarship means? What a school means, the original meaning of a scholar, leisure. We talked of a scholar and a gentleman because a gentleman was a person who had a private income and he could afford to be a scholar. He didn't have to earn a living, therefore he could study the classics and poetry and things like that. Today, pst, nothing is more busy than a school. They make you work, 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 work because you get cut through on schedule, they have expedited courses, and you, you, you go to school so as to get a union card with PhD or something so that you can earn a living. So that's a whole contradiction of scholarship. Scholarship is to study everything that's unimportant, not necessary for survival. All the charming irrelevances of life. But you see, the thing is this, if you don't have a room in your life for the playful, Life's not worth living. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. But if the only reason for which Jack plays is that he can work better afterwards, he's not really playing. He's playing because it's good for him. <laughs> he's not playing at all. You have to be able to be a true scholar. You have to cultivate an attitude to life we are not trying to get anything out of it. You pick up a pebble on the beach. Look at it. It's beautiful. Don't try and get a sermon out of it. Sermons in stones and God in everything be damned. <laughs> Just enjoy it. Don't feel that you've got to salve your conscience by saying that this is for the advancement of your aesthetic understanding. Enjoy the pebble. If you do that, you become healthy. We have to learn. We don't have to, you know, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to go on living. But it's a great idea, it's a great thing. If you can learn what the Chinese call purposelessness. They think nature is purposeless. When we say something's purposeless, that's put down. There's no future in it. It's a washout. But when they hear the word purposeless, they think that's just great. 
It's like the waves washing against the shore, going on and on and on forever with no meaning. A great Zen master said as his death poem, just before he died, from the bathtub to the bathtub, I have uttered stuff and nonsense. <laughs> the bathtub in which the baby is washed at birth, the bathtub in which the corpse is washed before burial, all this time I have said many nonsenses. Like the birds in the trees go, twee, 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 what's it all about? Everybody tries to say, oh, it's, it's, it's a mating call. It's purposeful, trying to get their mate, you know, attract them with a song. That's why they have colors, butterflies have eyes on them, self-protection, engineering view of the universe. <laughs> why do that? They say, well, it's because they need to survive. Well, why survive? What's that for? Well, to survive. See, human beings really are a lot of tubes. And uh, all living creatures are just tubes. And these tubes have to put things in at one end and let it out at the other. Then they get clever about it and they develop nerve ganglia on one end of the tube, the eating end, called a head. And that's in it. it's got eyes in it, it's got ears in it, it's got little organs, antenna and things like this. And that helps you to find things to put in one end so that you can let them out the other. <laughs> Well, while you're doing this, you see, the stuff going through wears the tube out. And so, that the show can go on, the tubes have complicated ways of making other tubes who will go on doing the same thing, in at one end, out the other. And they say, well, that's terribly serious. That's awfully important, we've got to keep on doing this. <laughs> But when Chinese say nature is purposeless, this is a compliment. It's like the idea of the Japanese have a, a word, uh, yugen, and they describe yugen as watching wild geese fly and be hidden in the clouds, as watching a ship vanish behind a distant island as wandering on and on in a great forest with no thought of return. Haven't you done this? Haven't you gone on a walk with no particular purpose in mind? Carry a stick with you and you occasionally hit at old stumps and wander along and sometimes twiddle your thumbs. It's at that moment that you are a perfectly rational human being. You've learned purposelessness. All music is purposeless. Is music getting somewhere? If it were, I mean, if the aim of music were, of a symphony, were to get to the final bar, the best conductor would be the one who got there fastest. <laughs> See, dancing, when you dance, do you aim to arrive at a particular place on the floor? Is that the idea of dancing? <laughs> the aim of dancing is to dance. Now, Here's the choice then. Are you going to trust it or not? If you do trust it, you may get let down. And this it is yourself, your own nature, and all nature around you. There are going to be mistakes. But if you don't trust it at all, you're going to strangle yourself. You're going to fence yourself round with rules and regulations and laws and prescriptions and policemen and guards 
and who's going to guard the gods? To live, I must have faith. I must trust myself to the totally unknown. I must trust myself to a nature which doesn't have a boss, because a boss is a system of mistrust. That is why Lao Tzu's Tao loves and nourishes all things, but does not lord it over them. listening to The Love of Wisdom with Alan Watts. For a copy of this program, call 1-800-969-2887, which is 1-800-W-O-WATTS. If you have any comments about the program or would like further information about the spoken works of Alan Watts, please write us at the same address, The Electronic University, P.O. Box 2309, San Anselmo, California, 94979. The Love of Wisdom with Alan Watts is produced by the Electronic University. Our theme music is by Acoustic Alchemy. I'm Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. <laughs>